It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au, 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me as always is Matt Grantham. How are you, mate? Very good, Anthony. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Who do we have today? Today in the studio, we're speaking to Lane Crockett from Impact Investment Group about the National Energy Guarantee and what it means for the energy investment landscape going forward. And he joins us in the studio today. Hello, Lane. Yeah, hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, for coming in. Uh, now, Lane, uh, we'd like to get a little bit of background about you know yourself and, and, and the history here, but can you tell us a little bit about your sort of journey in renewable energy and also a bit about Impact Investments and the sorts of projects that they have in their portfolio? Sure. Uh, Look, I got into renewables quite some time ago, uh, uh, back in the days when I was an engineering consultant. I started um, uh, consulting to developers on wind farms for the banks, uh, and uh, and that sort of blossomed into a, a role at Pacific Hydro, and I ended up being the um, executive general manager for Australia for Pacific Hydro for quite some period of time. So I've been through this for quite a while. I was on the board of the Clean Energy Council for quite a number of years, uh, and now I'm the head of renewables for renewable infrastructure for the Impact Investment Group. So, executive general manager. Okay, so you're an executive, you're general. And you also manage. Like, I'm always fascinated by the names they give various. I mean, there's a lot of vice presidents. Whenever I went to go into America for work, there's lots of vice presidents. What did executive general manager specifically mean inside uh, inside Pacific Hydro? So it meant I had uh, responsibility for everything that the company did in Australia. So to to develop assets, to uh, uh, get them built, uh, to maintain them, uh, responsible for the. Str- strategic direction of the Australian business um, and the financial performance of the business. Um, so, yeah, it was a very broad, going over general, but effectively within the Australian um, in market. That, yeah, okay. That's right. Yep. Uh, Lane, we'd like to sort of uh, focus today's discussion on the, the National Energy Guarantee, uh, the recent policy announcement uh, by the government here. And I would also like to direct listeners to a recent article that you guys published on Renew Economy. So if they want to sort of get a bit more background, then we'll uh, put that in the show notes as well. For the purpose of the discussion, do you want to outline the National Energy Guarantee given the level of detail we know about it to date. Right. Well, it won't take long, will it? Um, uh, look, and, and it's give, give eight pages, much, give, in fact, I think, and, Lane. Yeah, and give it about as much thought as has been given, <laughs> if you could as well. We've got enough time. Yeah, yes, I believe we have. Look, it's to, to me, it, it, it seems to be a policy that, that's been dreamt up pretty rapidly. And I, I would probably put it in as probably about the, what are we on, the fifth major policy in terms of trying to uh, address the energy sector. So, you know, the government describes it as trying to address that sort of nexus of, you know, reliability, affordability and emissions reduction. On the face of it, there are certain things about it that could possibly work. And so there are many in the industry who are prepared to sort of 
see how it might work or not. But there's there's a number of really concerning factors in the small amount of information that, that we've been given so far. But at the end of the day, the NEG, it's all about the target. So uh, if you have a target which is just simply about 26% um, on 2005 levels by 2030, it's not really doing very much at all. So given it's like the fifth best, best policy that we've seen um, and that it's not really got a target of much significance, it's it seems to me it's it's eight pages of not very much. So, Lane, I mean, you, you're in the business of allocating capital and, and trying to get a return for, for investors in this, you can argue, difficult investment climate. Given that the NEG doesn't really talk about uh, and has said openly that it's not looking at admissions issues belong beyond 2030, how difficult is it to allocate capital in an environment where you don't have certainty and you're expected to get a return on these assets over a 30-year period or 40-year period? How can that possibly work? It's, enti- it's entirely you know, problematic. Yeah. So, and it's not even um, 2030. It's actually 2020. Right. So, because the investments that that the Impact Investment Group is making right now are based under the renewable energy target. That's the policy that's doing the lifting. And when we say doing the lifting, that's what's causing the energy network to transition and drag in new investment because it's not necessarily required until a coal-fired power station, for example, shuts down. And then there's some investment to sort of fill it up. But we need to drive transition at a much faster rate. So we need something to tell you to do that. Come 2020, that investment signal disappears. And because, as I was mentioning before, there's not a very aspirational target beyond that, there's really nothing beyond that. So the NEG itself is not going to drive much in the way of investment all at all between 2020 and 2030, and then 2030, well, who knows? So can, can we go a bit back and say maybe think about the major differences you see between the, the old, well, the current regime of the renewable energy target and the NEG and how those mechanisms are different? Um, is it just the fact that the NEG is going to have a much lower target than, uh, than, the, than the RET would have been or we would have expected? Or is it fundamentally different in, in how in how it, it, it manages that reduction? Uh, so it's both. Okay. So firstly, its its target is not very high. So already by 2020, we're going to be, what, sort of 23% reduced in terms of emissions and business as usual because of what the renewable energy target has brought through. Um, uh, so there's really not much required to be invested in to meet that minus 26%. Um, but it is a different mechanism. So this time the mechanism's just pushed straight onto the retailers and it's just a, you shall meet this target. It doesn't say what will happen if they don't. Well, it kind of suggests that they would remove their retail license. But can you imagine a government turn around, turning around to AGL or Origin Energy and saying, okay, you missed the, your target by, but that's it. Your two million customers have to now go somewhere else to buy their electricity because we're removing your license. I mean, it's, it's fanciful. Definitely make the front page of the paper lane, that one, if it was to, <laughs> if it was to happen. Um, yeah. uh, lane, so obviously we've got this neg. We know there's little detail. We have to be very careful about, you know, given the, the very small amount of detail we've got on the policy at the moment. But in terms of your analysis, what are the sort of, if we look at this from a sort of unintended consequences point of view, what are some of the consequences 
of this policy from an overall market perspective? What does this do to coal generators, new renewables, and even different types of renewables? What what does it what does it look like going forward? You know, given the detail that we've got. Yeah. Okay. Well, firstly, because of the lack of detail, I can't actually procure a price forecast model based on the NEG because there's not enough detail. Right. So that that is the first instance. So that's why it's hard to make an investment decision because you don't even and, know. And what, what sort that of looks risk like. premium does that add, Lane? What sort of you know what sort of what what does this do to drive up the cost of the investment, which then goes on to the users? Like what does it what 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 put a risk premium on that as best you can? What you you mean a number? A no, yeah, well, like ten percent. Does it get to a point where it's so far out that you may, you may as well be a hundred percent? Well, I I that's that's right. I think what happens is it just turns investors away. So if you were going to get an, an incremental 2% extra return, you know, that you might put in as a hurdle. I, I don't know. I don't know whether yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, it's, sure. it's just too difficult. And every investor would see it differently. But the other things too is that there's some curls around this NEG policy that kind of are very worrisome. One of the things is putting so much power in the hands of the large incumbent gen tailors or, you know, utilities like AGL Origin and Energy Australia. So people already complain that they've got too much market power. Um, Well, this is just going to put it on steroids. Then there's some really interesting sort of market issues that we... We're going to have to. You'd have to get in some depth to really try and understand the the issues. But it, trying to put it in very quickly, you're asking the generators to contract, or sorry, the, the the smaller retailers to contract with the bigger retailers to ensure that they're getting enough dispatchable energy to meet the the neg. They're um, always so cooperative to their competitors as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> always. Um, and, and then there's how does that mix with the spot market? And so you're you're starting to change the spot versus the con- direct contracted market, and no one knows how that's going to play out. Can, can I dig in a bit into that? You know, you're saying it's putting that market power on steroids. The way we've come to understand the power of the gentailers so far is that they have a natural hedge in in how uh, that the price of energy works because they are. They are generators, which means they get a wholesale price. Now, the wholesale price can fluctuate as to what the retailer has to pay, but the the gentailers have a natural hedge because they're getting paid that amount on the other side. So if, if, if the wholesale price goes up for retail um, companies, they're, they're sitting okay because the other side of their business is getting paid that amount, so it all evens out. If you're just a retailer and you don't have that um, that generation capacity, then you have to eat that that increase in the wholesale price, or go and find some financial hedge or something. So, how does this then make it even worse? Because are you saying that now they're saying because of this dispatchability or this these different rules, they now have a new source of power? Because not only is it the the price they can get for the power generated, but it's just the very fact that those types of power are owned by them it gives them a natural advantage as well. Yes, okay. So uh, we, we call it a physical hedge for the gen tailors. In other yep. words, they have the physical assets to hedge their load. Um, if you're a smaller retailer, you, as you say, I mean, you've, you've summarised it very nicely, Anthony, by the way. I thought it was very well done, Anthony. <laughs> well done. Yeah. 
um, is that those smaller um, retailers use that sort of liquid financial hedging market to do what they need to do. Now, as well as doing that, they have to go to the big gentailers and basically in a two-way contract buy whatever they need to buy. So does that mean, well, firstly, there's that issue of the market power and, one, and especially one, in the, the gorilla context, and, yeah. the, and the ant. But, but I mean, especially in the context of it's all been about increasing competition and making sure people are aware of their bills. I mean, that's been a yeah. big focus of this. So what sorts of things could you put into a neg to protect those small retailers and encourage competition? I mean, how how, how could it be constructed in a way... You're you're, you're constructing something very complex, and now you're suggesting to put even more complex things in to address those complexities. (laughs) Oh my God! Just just simply, like, what what options would a smaller retail have? I mean, not all of the generation capacity is owned by the gentailers, right? So they would have other options, wouldn't they? Um, Or or maybe not on the dispatchability side. Yes, they. Do but what the other thing that you have to understand is that smaller retailers don't generally have credit ratings that allow them to enter into like long term arrangements with with counterparties who are generators. So um, so that that that's a problem for them that they constantly um, uh, have to deal with. So it, it, it's a challenge. Um, I, I just think that. Um, you know the the reality of what will happen here is the big retailers will just start buying up the smaller retailers, which happens fairly naturally anyway. But there'll be a further consolidation in the retail market, which is then probably likely to lead to the some of those higher prices that we're complaining about. You know, once well, you just, get market just, concentration, just monopolies, the, the banking sector in Australia. Mm. You know, that's where we're heading. Uh, we're in the studio today speaking to Lane Crockett from Impact Investment Group. And Lane, I wanted to follow up with, there's obviously been, you know, at a policy level, different governments in South Australia and Queensland looking at 50% renewables targets and and talk of an ETS and and, and talks of potential high levels of renewable penetration on the grid. The NEG policy at the moment, have you guys done some modelling? What does that modelling look like, assuming we don't get any renewable energy target? And what, what does the renewables penetration look like under a NEG, given the detail we've got? going forward to 2030, 2020, 2030. Okay, well, it, because the target is not very high, minus 26% on 20, 2005 levels, the investment in renewables will fall away significantly after 2020. So it's back to the roller coaster ride. So we've had a, we're having a couple of good years. So we're at the sort of the top where we're about to slide down the other side. But however, you know, if if for example, you looked at the um, the labour target for minus forty five percent in two thousand and five, that would continue investment pretty much at current levels. Okay. Um, and let, let's speak a bit more about this dispatchability thing. It, it immediately raised my eyebrows when I well, ears or whatever it happens um, yeah. when when you hear something blood that's, pressure. Yeah, possibly. did that too. <laughs> but that, that, that idea about dispatchability is this idea that you, through this mechanism you can dispatchability has become the byword for reliability so what we're after is reliability and what the government has said is dispatchability or guaranteeing dispatchability is a way to do that and the way we're going to do that is by forcing all of these retailers to buy credits based on the kind of generation that um, that that is generating the electricity do you I, 
are those just three or four massive leaps and massive assumptions that we can't really trust? I mean, I, I, I don't really understand how you can make those leaps and say, oh, okay, if we do this market mechanism, we're going to come up with a reliable grid. Yeah, so there's a few things we'll probably need to unpack yeah. there. The, the first is, it's to, in my view, it's a confected issue, particularly in the eastern states. Now, I get that South Australia now at, at you know around 50% renewables penetration is starting to need some support. So things like battery storage, pumped hydro, and they're starting to be put in, can nicely keep that grid in a balanced condition because that's what a grid's doing. It's just balancing inputs and output. So the other thing is, in the eastern states, what are we? We're around fifteen, between fifteen and twenty percent renewable. So Finkel launched a report, what not only yesterday, showing that that around fifty percent renewables, you're starting to have to do something. Mm. So why are we thirty percent in advance of needing to do something? That we're having this this um, you know this issues become front and center. It, a well designed system that's got good. Uh, investment certainty uh, and good regulation will just or cause it to happen. And that's basically been what's been happening until now we're in a transition. So yes, it is more complex, but the regulations aren't keeping up with the transition. And that's why we're starting to get some, you know, a few problems here and there. But it, to me, it's a it's an issue that doesn't exist at the level of which the um, the government's trying to suggest it. And then something Further is around, you know, this sense that, that, for example, old coal-fired power stations are, you know, so reliable. And yet we saw in the news, you know, that that time uh, in New South Wales where it got very close to the line, Liddell coal-fired power station was only running at around 50% because it was unable to get up to its top capacity. Uh, And the only way that New South Wales didn't... um, uh, result in brownouts is because the AGL was able to drop the smelter out. Mm. So the, the smelter basically went black for, um, you know, two, two hours or something, which means the pot lines were close to, you know, going solid. It was, um, But it, it kept the lights on. But the idea of building this market mechanism to say that you've got to buy a contract from dispatchable sources for, for, for their um, dispatch for the whole year, when in reality reliability is really about those key moments, isn't it? And that's what we should be optimising rather than having this whole different mechanism that doesn't really seem to do anything besides, I guess, ensconce the power of those who hap- who are lucky enough to be badged as dispatchable. Again, I think you've summarised it very well. I'd like to sort of, I mean, we pose, I'll pose a question to both of you. I mean, this idea around, uh, you know, uh, short-term dispatchability versus long-term mm. dispatchability. I mean, that's an interesting one to start to unpack. Uh, how do we, do we place under this NEG system a, a very high uh, bias towards batteries that can come on in milliseconds or pumped hydro that could come on in, you know, 50 seconds? Or do we define dispatchability as coal? You know, ring Liddell up, start, you know, give them an hour's notice. I mean, what at what point is dispatchability, are we interested in both short-term dispatchability and long-term dispatchability in terms of capacity? Mm. How can you incorporate that into some sort of neg-like policy? What, well, what, what, what is it, most prized by the grid, you know? Yeah, but that's the thing. You don't need a neg policy. You just need to have the regulation... Uh, managed in a way that ensures that it happens, um, uh, you know, given the transition. So you're right, there's a there's a big difference between capacity, 
to ensure that there's always enough energy available and reliability, which is the the ability for the grid to manage sort of short-term fluctuations. A lot of people sort of think, oh, it's because, you know, when the sun doesn't shine and all that sort of stuff. But in reality, the demand side of the system changes a lot. So uh, I think the the examples always used in the, the UK is when it's halftime at the soccer and everyone <laughs> steps and up and hits the kettle, yeah, you know, right. then the, there's a massive drain into their system at that moment. So you, but the mark operator knows that it's going to happen. You know, they're used to it. These things are relatively easily managed. There's some things that need to change, though. And so, like, the the 30-minute rule to the 5-minute rule so that, that, you know, batteries can play, which are very fast-acting, can play, you know, an important part in that transition. It's just one of those things that you basically make the market operator put it in place. You don't need an overarching um, guarantee of any sort. So... But if the operator uh, does have those regulations applied to them so they can um, guarantee that reliability, does that mean – what does that mean of, of what they expect of the other of other operators? Because when we think of reliability, we generally think it's something that the network is responsible for, uh, network owner, as, a, as opposed to the retailer. So – so it's it's how the market operator operates, but what do they? What would they be doing in the longer term to to guarantee that reliability over over time? And what other stakeholders would be involved in in a, in a well worked well worked regulatory system? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's a it's a holistic system, so everybody has to be a part of that. That the, the network owners need to be ensuring that they don't have parts of the network that fall over, and of course, as soon as something falls over, it can cascade. So the market operator, um, they kind of have to respond to the the infrastructure that exists. So they have certain powers to be able to step in at certain moments. So, for example, when South Australia went black, when, um, when that storm came through, the market operator, if they'd stepped in earlier, and this is not a criticism in any way, because, and I'll get to why, but um, they could have reduced the load on the interconnector between mm-hmm. Victoria and South Australia so that when the the storm had hit and that system became unstable, they could have pushed more electricity through from Victoria. But that line, that interconnector was already operating at like 100%. Now, that would have been a way to have managed that, and I'm sure now that's actually what they will do. But however, at the time, because there's certain costs and implications to the market of them stepping in in advance, you know, they're kind of reluctant to do it. Right. So there's learnings going on, and, and they certainly learnt a lot from that. Well, you're effectively, Lane, going in there and saying, gas guys, can you turn on at a higher price than we can get from the Latrobe Valley with coal? And that's distorting the Correct. market based Correct. upon... Yes. You know, so so I can you can understand their reluctance to do that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you can. But I mean, another another thing that sort of relates to what you're saying there is that I know it's been reported in Renew Economy and, and a few other places around the fact that um, a lot of wind farms in South Australia are being curtailed at I think 1,200 megawatts, the maximum capacity, and they're making some of the gas generators keep running, so they've got that dispatchability in the event that you know there's a drop off in the wind, they need to be able to pick up that slack quickly. So even getting gas out of the system, we're not still fully utilising a lot of the wind capacity, for example, that we could be hmm. if we had you know, a more efficient market in that sense. That's right. And so that's where storage can play a, you know, a big part because that can suck up that generation that's not, uh, not able to be dispatched into the market at that moment and then release it when it's needed.
from a dispatchability point of view, um, Lane, I also want to sort of ask you, obviously, you know, we're aware solar and storage are at a tipping point. Uh, demand management um, is going to need to be incorporated. How can demand management, for example, or uh, some sort of uh, change in tariff structures that that enable some price signal to help with the dispatchability, how might they be incorporated into the, you know, have they been modelled at all with this or are they likely to be modelled at all? Yeah, look, demand side management is a... Uh, is something that's there. It has massive opportunity. It's just not really being tackled in earnest. Um, so, so just for for the listeners, this is where effectively you're able to turn off a customer, like we talked about with the the smelter, so that that there's there's more energy in the system. So it's just it really it's about again the regulation not keeping pace with the transition. And so if if the if the market is developed such that demand side management can play its true and efficient role in the market, then yeah, there's huge opportunity there. We're coming to the end of the interview lane, but I'd I'd like to pose this question about reliability because that's very much what politics of the day is focused on. Is there within this national energy guarantee the potential for sort of like an optimal curve of guarantee, if you like, where if we've got something that where we're paying these base load producers to keep the system on and maintain this dispatchability, um, but they don't deliver it, how could there be you know maybe some sort of fine or uh, disincentive for them? to make sure that those systems are truly dispatchable? Because you mentioned before, sometimes coal generators go down. Is there a way that it could be designed so that, yeah, sure, we we keep a a national energy guarantee, but we make sure that there's fines or some sort of disincentive for the dispatchability not being there when it should? Well, I'm going to guess for a moment, but I suppose if, if, if the gen tailors, for example, are contracting to provide that and they don't provide it, I suppose there could be some sort of contract uh, penalties that might apply. So having to um, compensate another party for not doing it. So, so more, com- more might, complexity, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Well, sure, but that might inherently be part of it. But sure, it seems very unreasonable that you would put in this massive new policy and then there's no impost if you don't actually provide the reliability that it's supposed to deliver. So, I, look, I don't know because, I, frankly, I, I don't really think this is a it, very good yeah. way to do it. <laughs> it yeah, because you used reliability in air quotes there. We didn't see yeah. you on the... On the yeah. But it's that point about, okay, so oh, if they're shown to not be be yeah. you know be able to dispatch when when needed. So when, when would that actually be uh, determined? Because, you know, we've talked about the fact that the reliability events are, are few and far between. Yeah. So is it just when they're not dispatchable at those key moments? Because prob- they probably wouldn't be dispatchable at other moments, but just no one's noticed because the market stayed relatively steady. Now, if we're yeah, going to so have a, a penalty regime, it's going to be when, when it really matters, doesn't it? Oh, and, absolutely. And, and how much teeth those uh, penalties have got, Anthony. It's yeah. a slap across the wrist and we're just paying a lot of money, but we're not getting the insurance that we're demanding. Well... What are we paying that money for? Well, I swear, the the way it would work in the contract market, and then beyond that, I can't really comment because who sure, knows. But sure. um, is that if a small retailer is contracted with a gen tailor, and they haven't um, provided the dispatchable energy at that moment, then they'll have to pay the small retailer, compensate them for whatever it costs in the market. So if it's a really difficult event, you know, the market price could be twelve thousand dollars a megawatt hour, and so, yeah, there would be some significant payments that could pass hands at that point. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Lane. We've run out of time today, but uh, is there anywhere you could direct listeners to if they want to find out a bit more about yourself or Impact Investment? Yes, it's Impact. Uh, dash group.com.au so just quickly you know impact investing is is about shifting capital towards um, uh, where there's a commercial return but you know positive social and environmental benefits so it's a new way of of investing but knowing that your money's going to a, a good place and doing good things fantastic thank you very much we've been speaking to lane crockett um, i'm matt grantham i'm anthony daniel and if you want to find out more about bze then have a hop onto the website and we'll see you next week see you later Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.